San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, good evening, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. All these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com, and uh, they're free on iTunes if you search the title of the show. And if you download the app for 760KFMB, you can stream, you can hear us live on any device that you have. Now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire. He's an accomplished marathon runner. He's a best-selling author a philanthropist, and a family office expert advising several high net worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? I am doing great, Joe. <laughs> Getting ready to watch the Super Bowl here in about a week. Oh, yeah. I think it's Panthers all the way. Oh, they look so good. They look unstoppable. And whoever has the fewest concussions wins, I guess, right? <laughs> By the way, have you seen the film yet? I have not seen the film yet. Yeah, I've seen it. But you know what? I think the documentary is uh, even a little better than the film, although the film's well made. And um, But anyway, look, we've got a very important guest tonight. Let's with, not waste time. Yeah, with a lot of information. Actually, it's his, I believe it's his third appearance on our show. He was the inaugural guest for this show. And folks, uh, if you know anything, if you heard the names Enron or... Um, Tyco or any of those big companies that cratered years ago. This man's been battling Wall Street and all these uh, and fraud. I'm sure Bernie Sanders would uh, love this gentleman. He's the king of class action lawsuits in the private securities world. Uh, retired now, but lecturing all over the country. And uh, he's done some fantastic recent lectures right here in, in the University of California, San Diego. Without further delay, uh, Bill Lirac, welcome again. Hi, Joe. It's so How good. How you doing? Yeah. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah. I, know, I know you're a little under the weather, but uh, so we thank you for, for being here. been battling this, this nasty cold. But, well, gosh, uh, uh, so much going on. The market's in a little bit of trouble. But, but you've got this great lecture. It's, uh, it's about American, your life in the law and uh, the American legal system and whether it's a tool for progress or a weapon of oppression. I guess a little bit of both, but there's trends that, uh, interesting trends that, and alarming trends that uh, you've been pointing out. But where do you want to start? I mean, uh, you want to give a, you want to start? Uh... Well, look, we entitled the lecture series A Life in the Law, and it was very nice for UCSD to, to agree to have us do this. Gives you a chance to look back on the years, reflect a little bit. Uh, why did we begin this journey, and where did we end up? And I went to law school in the 60s. It was really a time of uh, tumult in the country and mm-hmm. change. And I went to law school believing that you'd have an ability to actually do something if you could find the right cases and mm-hmm. all of that. And for many years, I was lucky enough to, to do that. But now there's a terrible backlash in the legal system against ordinary people taking powerful interests to court. And I'm discouraged, honestly, after that life in the law. Mm-hmm. I was reading a little bit this morning about, um, you know, when FDR got elected, within the first 100 days, you had these rules, what, 10B and 10B-5, and maybe you could enlighten people about those. What with, happened? Uh, and all the bank, and why did they come into existence? What, of course, you had had the terrible stock market crash. By the beginning of 1933, the United States was paralyzed economically. The banks were failing. People were living on the streets. 
Roosevelt, in 100 days, had enacted a series of financial reforms, including laws prohibiting fraud and misrepresentation in connection with Wall Street and, and finances. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, these became the, the tools that made the American markets much more honest and, and honestly made our markets the envy of the world mm-hmm. and attracted capital from all over the world. And ironically, the financial interests regained strength with the new prosperity that came from the New Deal. And over time, they've used that increasing strength and political power to erode these basic protections. And now our markets are not the best in the world anymore, and they're fraud infested. Mm-hmm. There's a lesson that we have to learn from this, and we have to do something about it. But, but Bill, beyond the financial markets, uh, one of my big challenges with the entire legal system is is that it basically only represents people who can afford it, which is a very, very small mm-hmm. minority of people in this country who can actually afford good to great legal services. It's so horrible, Richard, that the truth is that a normal American family can't afford a legal dispute. They, they, they don't have the thousands of dollars in costs that a lawyer will demand, let alone able to pay them by an hour. Actually, we live almost in a fantasy land in our affection and respect for our legal system, which is historically based, compared to its current reality, which ordinary people can't get a fair shake. And you touch upon this in your lecture when you get into this this forced arbitration now. There's, a, there's a corporate war on, on the legal on litigation, right? Think about this. Now, most people don't know this, but you have a constitutional right guaranteed in the United States Constitution to a jury trial in front of your peers in any civil dispute over twenty dollars, mm-hmm. they forgot to index it in, <laughs> right. in 1789. But the point remains true. Uh, now, a jury trial right is a fundamental right of an American citizen. It ought to mean something. It ought to be accessible to us. Not only, Richard, is it inaccessible in the way that the expenses and everything are there. But as Joe just alluded to, the courts are substituting arbitration for jury trials. Arbitration that ends up being held in front of industry experts who are sympathetic to the industry, and it's not fair, and you don't get a good result. Every time every one of our listeners touches that computer, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. Read and agree. Because all you want to do is get to the next page. You are losing your jury trial right Mm -hmm. every single time you do that. Now, the law should not tolerate such an outrageous fiction, for heaven's sakes. Mm -hmm. But yet, the Supreme Court of the United States does it. Yeah. Not yeah, well, work. arbitration is very similar to the word arbitrary, and, <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, the experts tend to favor the, um, well, the side with the power, mm-hmm. which is usually the side with the money. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was sold, Richard, uh, it'll be less expensive. Right, less expensive. It'll be faster, if only it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
Well, where the rubber meets the road is if Enron, the Enron case came along today. And let's just enlighten people. Bill represented the UC regents who were the largest plaintiff in that massive collapse. And, and people should know that uh, Enron was the seventh largest corporation in the in the U.S. at the time, market cap of $65 billion, which is, you know, today, you know, Apple, uh, there's a lot of other larger ones. But, but still... Um, 22 or 28,000 employees, this, uh, jobs destroyed. And uh, the regents, I guess, had, uh, or UC had invested in their pension fund, what, $150 million bill they lost? You know, let's tell this story so that it's told for the record, and it's a good story. Mm-hmm. And it delivers credit on a number of people who otherwise wouldn't get it who deserve it. Enron collapsed. Large pension funds throughout America lost billions of dollars. When that happens, there were a group of lawsuits centered together in one place, and the court picked the University of California pension system as the plaintiff to run the case, and we were their lawyers. This was exactly how this system was supposed to work. You had a plaintiff, not who lost $100, but $140 million. A plaintiff with an internal legal department of highly educated, extremely good lawyers, and we teamed together. And together we recovered $7.3 billion, the largest recovery in the history of such litigation ever. Could not have been accomplished without the help of the university. But the people should fund. know the original complaint, I think, asked for $60 billion because that $65 billion in stock was gone, right? Well, look, what the damages are in these cases... Uh, is always a matter of tremendous dispute between the lawyers. What's indisputable is $7.4 billion is a lot of money. The University of California pension system itself got a check for $40 million. Mm -hmm. This was a meaningful piece of litigation. And the tragedy is today, if the same catastrophe happened, we could not sue the banks. The Supreme Court will not let us. They have eliminated our ability to do that. And this is part of the closure of the legal system. And we'll talk about that Stonebridge case, probably the biggest case uh, that people don't know about, when we come back with Bill Derek right after this. Hang on. All right. Everyone knows that song. That's the 60 Minutes theme. It's not a song. It's a clock. (laughs) Anyway, by the way, our guest Bill Lyric has been on that show, one of his first big cases when he sued the United Methodist Church, but we'll come to that later. I, I want to follow up more on this Enron situation, and, um, and Bill, the Stone Ridge case, maybe you can enlighten our listeners about that, because uh, not enough people know, and which pretty much exonerates banks and, and third parties from fraud today, right? Well, there's a, we mentioned the securities laws passed by the Roosevelt administration, which include a prohibition against any person engaging in a scheme to defraud. That's pretty straightforward mm-hmm. and easy for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the banks were sued, when Enron failed, they were sued under the theory that they participated in Enron's scheme to defraud. And the uh, It was a very powerful claim. Uh, It exposed the most powerful and richest banks in America to billions of dollars of liability. They ultimately had to settle our case in the middle of it. Uh, And unfortunately, the Supreme Court took another different case and ruled that, uh, believe it or not, if you are a victim 
of a deliberate scheme to defraud you, you cannot sue the banks that participated in and helped that. Now, this is part of a campaign by the Supreme Court to eliminate or limit the liability of rich and powerful financial interests in the United States. No one can deny that. Uh, I think that has very unfortunate consequences for all of us. Compare, just for a second, I think about 10 or 11 Enron executives were ultimately convicted of one type of criminal behavior or another. Every one of those convictions, every single one of those convictions was reversed by the courts of appeal. Not one banker in the United States went to jail after the 0708 financial crisis. Now, you compare that to what happens to young minority, especially male inner city dwellers in the United States, and the diversity, the, the, the divide, divergence mm-hmm. is really shocking, and we ought to be ashamed of it. Well, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's uh, prisoners. I mean, there's some kind of disconnect there. Uh, but, should... but, but, Bill, there were, there were a lot of participants who contributed to Enron. I mean, you had an auditor that was also raking in tens of hundreds of millions of dollars of consulting fees. You had regulators. Well, Arthur Anderson the, the, was put out of yeah, business, Arthur, right? Had, uh, the regulators who were overseeing the financial reporting and reports, I mean, the regulators always wind up wanting to be on the other side in practice someday so they can make a lot of money. So I, I would argue well, they don't really ever want to upset anybody who might hire them in the future. I mean, there, there was a lot of moving pieces that I think were just really bad for the consumer. You know, Richard, uh, you weren't. your daughter came to the lecture the other night. You weren't able to be there. I want to repeat something that went on in the lecture that I, I, I really think people ought to know this. Now, President Obama appointed Eric Holder the Attorney General of the United States. Eric Holder uh, selected Lanny Brewer as the head of the criminal division. Those two men... And Holder's top assistant all came from a single Washington, D.C. law firm located about four blocks down the street from the Justice Department. While those men were in charge of the Justice Department, a whole series of international bank crimes occurred that I won't take the time to list. But believe me, it's tax evasion, money laundering, other financial frauds, and not a single banker was indicted or went to jail. Now, after that task had been completed about four months ago and those investigations all closed, Mr. Holder, Mr. Brewer, and the other guy went back to Wilmer, Cutler, and Pickering Law Firm four or five blocks down the street. The offices of the two top men had been kept vacant waiting for them for six years now, these men didn't even have to change the parking garage that they used <laughs> when they went to work. Now, that is a revolving door, and I cannot look at that and have confidence in the legal system. Mm. I just can't. Another big firm there is the Covington and Burling, right? That's another, another yeah. big, powerful firm. Well, um, let's address the accounting a little bit, uh, and this really relates to stock fraud. When we say fraud, we mean most of it's stock fraud. Uh, maybe you can enlighten people on the, um, the stock option uh, fraud that goes on, uh, Bill. Well, how about they backdate? it's a terrible abuse of a good idea. Many years ago, as America's corporations were beginning to recover and rebuild, the notion of executive stock options came into being. 
and you align the interest you feel of the shareholders with the executives by giving the executives options to buy stock at cheaper prices. As the stock goes up, they make a lot of money. Good idea. Which they well, don't they don't pay a dime for that, right? Well, no, they pay the option price. Okay. But what, uh, it, the tax is deferred way, way down the road. So. Okay. Yeah. It, believe me, it's an exceptionally advantageous financial relationship mm-hmm. for the executives. Mm-hmm. What has gone on by capturing the SEC, the regulators, these regulated individuals have basically gotten rid of the rules that restricted insider selling. There used to be a mandatory six-month holding period. There isn't anymore. They backdated the stock options to make even more money. And you know what, Richard, you know over time and in the aggregate, this results in an enormous wealth transfer from a class of people that we can call ordinary investors Mm -hmm. to the executive class. And, you know, this is not a situation where these executives sell $3 million worth of stock. These are $40 million. $60 $60 million. These are transactions of just size as to just boggle the mind of an ordinary person. Well, didn't Lou Pai get out of Enron with $300 million and took off for Hawaii or something? He did, and we, I think we scraped about $50 million back from him. I yeah. can't remember, <laughs> but we chased him to Hawaii. That's sure for sure true. Well, Bill, somebody once said the easiest way to steal a million bucks is to steal $1 from a million people. Yeah. Because the million people probably can't afford representation to get their dollar back. Well, you know, there's Bill Black. I heard this TED Talk the other day, and Bill Black, and his title is, The Best Way to Rob the Bank is From the Inside. I yeah, guess from the, the inside out. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely right. So, uh, can, can I tell a little bit of a joke? Yeah. It's a San Diego joke. Please. Go ahead. Let me see if I can remember this right now, and I want to tell it in an appropriate way. Okay. Mm-hmm. C. Arnhold Smith had been caught looting the bank. Right. Because he had appointed every judge in town, nobody here could sentence him. Yep. So they brought a judge in from out of town to sentence him. And he gave him a suspended sentence. And that night down, let's just say, in inner city San Diego, a group of guys are sitting around looking at what happened and said, man, we ain't knocking over no more banks till we own one. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that, you know, many a true word is said in jest. Well, how yeah, many right. banks collect? I mean, I think it was close to fifteen hundred. Put the money he stole into the Padres. His his Padre team stuck for forever. But this this fraud gets so industry wide. Now, Bill's gonna he hasn't seen the Big Short yet. Have you seen it, Richard? No, Mary wants to go. Oh see my it. gosh, we, we might go see it by this weekend. You absolutely have to yeah, see that. I mean, the accounting fraud. I told you that you recommended it. Yeah, the accounting fraud. Bill, no, I and mean, you guys know this. The accounting fraud is scandalous, but it's industry wide. The reason I don't think they could put these people in jail, Bill because there isn't a jail big enough. I mean, you may have to put thousands of people to, in, in jail. Yes, it's true. But, you know, finances are... I don't need to tell you, gentlemen, you're in the business. Finances are complex. Uh, I think most ordinary people, once they're into the world of co- corporate finance, it's something, you know, beyond their education and, and background. And I think that's one of the reasons the outrage fades. When we have a horrible... It's 0708 financial collapse or an Enron. I remember the chairman of Goldman Sachs getting on TV during the Enron crisis. Oh, we're going to hold Wall Street. Oh, it's going to be different this mm-hmm. time. And of course, there's outrage mm-hmm. and then a long cooling off period, and then people forget and it happens again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's troublesome. But I, 
what to do about that. Well, we're in kind of a bubble now. I mean, we had the worst January opening of the market in history, mm-hmm. you know. And, and is that, is that a, um, a sign? I don't know. Um, seems like we, you know, we a Happy bubble. New Year, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's just it's just staggering. But the 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 accounting, Richard. What do you have to say about the accounting industry that gets captured by you know corporate bigwigs? You know, you, we got to well, make they, these they, numbers. They made attempts at form. I mean, the, the the old way it worked is the auditors were also able to, or another department of the same firm were able to do consulting. There's been efforts to try to separate those functions. Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges, though, even on the audit side, is is when you have an auditor who's doing the audit year after year after year, um, is that an independent and objective firm? Because yeah. they're relying on receiving huge fees. Maybe yeah. they should be rotated every three years or yeah. five years. We'll get more into that. We can we'll, talk about that after yeah, the ads. We've we got to take a break. We'll come back with Bill Lairac, king of the class action lawsuits, right after new sports and weather. Hang on. We are back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life. Now over to Richard to thank our sponsors. I'm going to be really fast on the sponsors, Joe, because I've got this question that I've got to ask Bill. <laughs> Short and sweet, UBS couldn't do it without you. Michael Caronta, Drew Friedis, saw them this week. Always fun to see those guys. Our favorite CPAs on the planet, we've got two sets of them. Signature Analytics, Jason Kruger, CPA, great CFO service, also more traditional CPAs. Plato Epic CPAs up in San Marcos. Carl Sheeler with Berkeley Research Group, business valuation firm. Helping business owners understand the risks that drive the value of their businesses, reduce the risk, increase the value. Also, Kurt Gattreau and Joel Gruskin with Cost Segregation Initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. They're working on our project down at Belmont Park. It's a lot of fun. Brenda Geiger, the law office of Brenda Geiger, asset protection and estate planning. Also, California Republic Bank, niche market bank out of Orange County with an office now in UTC run by Sean Puckett and Lane Elliott, serving wealthy families and family offices. For those of you who enjoy open enrollment, how about Hub International, also known as Mars Maddox Insurance? Recent guest, Neil Staley, a great employee benefits firm. The LG Experience and the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of the CPAs that serve great clients. Focus on your best clients, not the B and C's. Lombardi Group will tell you how to do that. Also, one of our favorite guests, Paul Hines with Hearthstone Private Wealth Management. Paul heads up the senior safeandsound.org initiative here in San Diego, helping to prevent elder financial abuse. And, of course, two others. And then I'll be done. ServantLeadershipInstitute.com have their national event coming up here in San Diego on March 6th, 7th, and 8th. Check out ServantLeadershipInstitute.com. And, of course, Bill, you would know about this organization, the Very Good Food Foundation. I think Michelle's going to be on soon, right, Joe? Next week. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's our sponsors, and yeah. we've got lots of cool information about our sponsors. Where, Joe? Yeah. Well, yeah. Also, let's add Endless Stats Coffee House too. Oh, are they uh, official because, now? Yeah, they're official. Okay, but, cool. Um, they can I didn't find know out. that. See, yeah. I got to come to the show and do the show to find yeah. this stuff out. <laughs> well, you're here. <laughs> but um, anyway, if, they, if folks get over to iymoney.com, there is a sponsor tab along the top of the page. Uh, just put your cursor on there. There's a drop-down menu. You, you can learn about. Uh, click on any one or all of them. Learn about their background information and their content information. They've all been working with Richard for many years. With Some cases success. pushing thirty years yeah great success yeah, and since we, i was three and we have to thank them for supporting us uh, and we keep getting awards every year so everyone's happy anyway back to bill you had some you so had bill, a burning here, here question, my question. If, if if an so-called independent auditor is being paid millions and millions of dollars to audit a firm year after year after year is that really independence and objectivity and action well it's not and it's it's Something that an ordinary person would immediately understand, but of course, through sophistication and obfuscation, 
uh, we have this concept of independence. It's an illusion. But look, I, it's interesting, Richard. Think about the accounting profession. When Enron collapsed, Arthur Anderson ends up being destroyed. Now, this was a fantastic, 100-year-old, international, revered accounting firm. Did not fail because of the civil lawsuits. It failed because of a criminal case that the United States government brought against it for destruction of evidence. Tragically, the conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court, but Anderson was lost. And I, that's a sad story, mm -hmm. Richard. I knew many of the men and women at Anderson. We worked with them, mm -hmm. and they tried valiantly to save that company, and it was lost. And, you know, I never thought the government got quite the beating that, you know, they might have taken for that anyway. I think because of that, the government is taking a sort of a hands-off approach toward the industry. 0708 financial crisis on Wall Street, horrible accounting for us. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Nothing happened to the accountants, really. Everyone has left them alone. Maybe they're doing better, but you know, it's sort of what Buffett says. Uh, you can't tell till the tide goes out, you know, who's been swimming naked. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe oil assets, Richard and Joe, mm -hmm. are going to be the tide going out. A life in the law, we talk about that. You know, one of my first big cases 30-some years ago involved new energy, new heavy oil during an old oil crisis. You know, Penn Square Bank, mm -hmm. it's hard to remember, Continental remember. Illinois Bank. That was all oil prices collapsing and the value of oil assets pledged as collateral collapsing. We may be seeing that again, and I, I think it's something that and, it's and, off topic. And probably some but, shorting going on, too. Oh, my God. Just, but but I, I think auditors should should be revolving, I don't know, a five-year term, then somebody else comes Why in. Now, not? the CPAs go, well, wait a minute, then we can't make any money because it takes one or two years to get up to speed to actually – well, look, if you're in the – Working for the public's interests, maybe a high profit motive shouldn't be your main objective. Maybe serving the public interest should be the main objective, and you make a good living while doing it. Well, that's that, that's right. And, and uh, you know, you can sort of look at the big accounting firms now. I think there's only maybe four of them yeah. left. But, you know, they're like massive public utilities. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have a formal rotation program, but, you know, they control the, the heart of the big public company mm -hmm. market. And I think you're absolutely right. It would, it, they can make lots and lots of money and rotate. And boy, that takes the pressure off mm -hmm. to accommodate mm -hmm. the client. I, here's a, I thought Arthur Anderson only had 35,000 employees. As, check this out, Richard and Bill. In, they were founded in 1913. Their revenue in 2002 was $9.3 billion, and they had 85,000 employees. As of 2007, 200 employees. So probably no. 200,000. No, 200. Oh, right. Oh, he's saying yeah. Anderson As went a, down to 200. Yeah. Well, they, they actually, bounce, that name bounced back. Somebody picked that name up. Yeah. But, but the company no longer exists. Yeah. But, yeah. That was a... I just think about the consequences of the decision that was made to criminally indict the firm and uh, have that consequence. That that was really too bad. That shouldn't have happened. Well, speaking of consequences, Bill, you get a lot of these huge billion-dollar settlements even against the big banks today and, and other financial in institutions, but, but uh, the principles don't have any consequences, right? The well, problem, Joe, Joe, the other thing is, is a lot of those huge settlements are a drop in the bucket for right, the company. Right, uh, But Bill wants and, to comment and, on that. And interestingly, Richard, think about the banks. You know, I'm going to use a number. We had it in the lecture. 
it, it makes your knees buckle. The big <laughs> banks paid fines, criminal fines of $251 billion arising out of the 0708. That's a lot of money to pay. And you know what? The bank stocks trade at all-time highs. Why? Because the banks received billions of dollars of bailout money from the federal government, some of which was recycled to pay the fines. And a bank has one big advantage none of us have. They can march up to something called the Fed window Mm -hmm. in the morning and write down basically on a piece of paper how much money they want to borrow for basically 0% interest. Turn around, buy 3% 30-year Treasury bonds, make a 3% risk-free arbitrage profit. So the individuals at the banks didn't pay a penny. So that's why the conduct won't change. And now just switch with me to the other end of the, of the spectrum. Police, police brutality, police violence. American cities have paid almost $500 million in settlements in the last few years for excessive force. Individual policemen have paid not a single penny. This, from both ends of this spectrum, at the top of the corporate world and in the streets with the police, there's no individual accountability for excessively bad behavior. We ought to try to change that. Yeah. Well, um, Hopefully some of these police will get prosecuted. You know, we hate to criticize the police because, look, the overwhelming majority of them are doing a great job and a very difficult job. But Chicago, the, the, the cop who shot that guy 16 times, I guess he's up on murder charges. We'll see what they do in Chicago. The, Joe, right. it, it doesn't matter that 95% of policemen are devoted, police people are devoted, hardworking, and doing us all a service. The 5% that are bad create a toxic atmosphere, right. which is destroying our inner cities. It's going to lead to more and more armed confrontation. Man, I thought we were done with this after the civil rights revolution. I just wonder if maybe we're going to look at a second uh, well, echo of that. Well, well, thought- well, there's a tacit system in place of superiors looking the other way. Yeah. That's the unfortunate thing is that you, I, 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 yeah. I guess you're not supposed to really turn a brother in. Well, I thought after the and, Rodney um, King riots so that we'd get some improvement, but apparently that caused a problem. But anyway, we got to take a break. We'll come right back with Bill Lirak, King of Class Action Lawsuits, and other great things right after this. Hang on. I love that music. That's uh, Police Squad, right, Justin? How about that? Leslie Nielsen, I believe. Yeah, Joe, we're probably all going to get speeding tickets as we call out of here at 15 miles There'll be an hour. tickets on our cars when we get out of the studio here. And anyway, we're back with Bill Lirak, king of class action lawsuits, a nationally known, maybe internationally known attorney. I mean, when you mentioned private securities law uh, fraud and, and whatever, he was, he was the guy everyone went to. As a matter of fact, you know, we had a Republican governor back in 2000. And, of course, when UC Regents got in trouble, I don't, you, you know, you probably weren't their first choice, Bill, but they had, they had to go to you because uh, you, uh, you were the Babe Ruth. So, Well, remember, these are responsible people running a giant pension fund. Mm-hmm. And when you lose, not your fault, but you lose 140 or $50 million dollars, as a fiduciary, you have an obligation to try to make a reasonable recovery on that loss, and you at least have to undergo some sort of analysis. What should we do? What are our best options? 
I very much commend uh, the UC pension mm-hmm. system for that. And they've done it in other situations as well. Look, the pension fund is a world that can stand up to corporate America. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're powerful enough to. And I think they can make a difference if they, you know, demand better behavior by corporate executives. So, Bill, let, let me ask you a question well, totally out of the blue about young people, people going into the law. Um, do you think most young people go into to the law for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? A combination of both. We had a seminar yesterday and, and talked to uh, uh, about 20 students, and this came up among them. And it's an mm-hmm. interesting conversation was sort of heartbreaking. There was a young guy there who said, you know, boy, I really, I'd like to do with the kind of stuff you did. Where, how do I, where do I go for that? He said, now here's my problem. I have $110,000 in debt. Right. When we came out of college and law school years ago, we weren't saddled with the, these kinds of obligations. So that's, you know, that's, that's tough for young, young people today. It drives them into the commercial world to make the money to pay back their loans. That's right. Um, gosh, I mean, and a couple of kids were from Compton, by the way, right? Uh, it was a nice, nice young, young, young group of kids. What I, what, what I, I think I said this to them yesterday. If I didn't, I thought about it. I went to law school, and I was overwhelmed by it. I was completely overwhelmed by the whole ambiance of it, wooden halls, and professors of profound intelligence, really interesting intellectual stuff to to explore. But it was like we were going to church. It was like we were being taught to be reverent of -hmm. this that we were studying. Well, reverence is just fine. But, you know, (laughs) Plessy versus Ferguson was the Supreme Court. And I said, Dred Scott. So the law is imperfect. And I, I want young law students. There ought to be law schools, Richard, that... Teach not a not a revolutionary view of the law, but a really critical view of the law that it can be made better, mm-hmm. and it ought not to be blindly revered. Speaking of pensions, our city pension, county pension. As far as I know, they're still they're two billion underfunded each, and and uh, you give a great talk on pensions uh, in addition to your current lectures, and uh, you say they're in a lot of danger still, right? Well, if you consider the fact, first of all, there's no honest accounting. So the answer is none of us really know. What do you really want two know. plus two to be? <laughs> There's too many estimates. Uh, how much is it going to cost me? Well, let me guess how long you're going to live. Well, right. as soon as we're doing that, we're all in imaginary land. But uh, the stock market, despite its recent bonds in Iran, is right near an all-time high. And I believe the pension funds are at least $2 trillion underfunded article in the Wall Street Journal today showing the Kentucky Public Employee Pension Fund upside down. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a time bomb. It's been a time bomb, and someday it's going to go off. There will be some externality, I don't know what it will be, that will take this from a boiling brewing crisis into a really acute one. Hmm. Uh, and there's no getting around it. People and- are going to live longer. More money is going to be paid out. You have an American economy growing at 3.5% a year, not 9% a year. 
the stock market is never going to pay for the pension obligations that have been undertaken. And further, health care costs continue to rise yeah, dramatically. And just that, too, Richard, on top. Huh? Well, a lot of major corporations. There was a book by uh, an Alan Schultz, a Wall Street Journal uh, uh, reporter called Retirement Heist. And, gosh, I think GE and a lot of major companies just stopped paying into their pension funds in the, in the late 80s. Uh, well, they so, don't want to take the stock market yeah. risk of going forward. They want yeah. to shift that on to the retirees. Yeah. I, I, I would like to tell a story if I could. Please. It's an old, old story from the New Yorker. In the late 1940s, a young, wonderful labor leader named Walter Ruther was sitting down to negotiate a multi-company labor contract with a man from General Motors. I believe it was Charles Wilson. Wilson is smart, and he says to Ruther, you know what your men need? A pension. You're going to have a pension. General Motors is going to pay these guys for the blah, blah, blah. Uh, Ruther, who was like Bernie Sanders, a <laughs> Democratic Socialist, mm-hmm. says, and very, very perceptive, nope, pensions are not the obligations of private companies. Pensions are the obligation of the government. And he says, who knows? In 60 years, General Motors could be bankrupt. He wow. was laughed out of the room voted down by his own executive committee and membership, and hence the beginning of the American mm-hmm. pension system. That was the first big private pension, and look what happened to General Motors. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, who the ever... tough thing about the future is predicting it. Yeah, it's like saying today Apple might crater at some point. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, re- that's really something. But uh, let's, let's enlighten people uh, about your lectures. UCSD-TV is airing the first lecture on, on their TV station, and that will be February 15th. So Google that, folks, and just go over to UCSD.TV. I believe that's their website on February 15th or thereafter. Your next lecture is going to be February 18th uh, at the Great Hall at International House, which is uh, right at UCSD. Very easy to find, folks. It's free, open to the public. Look, just show up. We'll, we'll squeeze you. We'll shoehorn you in if, the, if, we, if there aren't enough seats. Um, and that'll be at uh, 6 o'clock reception which, which, with some nice healthy food and, and well, beverage. What's the title of that presentation? Yeah. That's- uh, the Holocaust Litigations is Holding Corporate Evil Accountable an Impossible Dream. The answer was it wasn't, and it's an interesting story of holding the Swiss banks and the German corporations responsible for what they did during the European Holocaust. Yeah, you took out a big ad in the New York Times, I think, back. And they, you were suing Mercedes-Benz at the time? or uh, Ford, Mercedes-Benz, Bayer, Siemens, yeah. Krupp. Yeah, a lot of them. Matter of fact, there was a big, uh, there was a big uh, controversy. If you go to Berlin today, and uh, we've been there, there's there, that uh, huge city block with the granite squares. Yes. It's supposed to be a tribute to the, the dead Jews in Europe who were killed during the Holocaust. And um, the company that, well, they, they didn't want to put have graffiti on these. So some company said, we'll donate the chemical. You could spray these granite blocks so they're graffiti proof. Apparently, it's the same company that was making the, the gas for the gas chambers uh, during the Holocaust. So uh, I don't know where that all wound up, but I, I think they did wind up accepting their donation. Look, you got to hand it to Germany. They are, you know. They're not sugarcoating it. They they're exposing you know what went on in the past, and it's actually become a big tourist. A lot of these death camps. I mean, they could have just you know paved these over, build make shopping malls, right? I, I, I was very privileged to be appointed by President Clinton to the United States Holocaust Foundation. Runs the museum in Washington. It's been a lifelong interest and avocation of mine. 
And I, I will say one thing. However atrociously horrible the conduct of the German people were during the war, they have, throughout that country, built the most moving, informative museums and tributes to those terrible times. And I would note that I do not believe in America there are similar museums for black people and slavery for mm-hmm. the American Indians. So With- let's... Uh, Let's try to be forgiving. Yeah, I do know if you go to the Arlington National Cemetery, you will, um, you know, they do have the, I think the slavery quarters up there by uh, Robert E. Lee's house, but that's the only thing that I, that I can remember. But anyway, should we do a little bonus track and talk in another, another five, 10 minutes? Oh, we guys? What do you think? Yeah. So um, look, we're, we're going to do a bonus track. Go to I, music. Yeah. Go to IYMoney.com. Thank you, Justin Hart, our sound engineer for making a song great. Bill, thanks for coming by. Yeah, Richard, great Thank seeing you. Thank you. You're nice to have me. I enjoyed Pleasure. it. And we're going to talk some more. Uh, we'll have a bonus track. Thanks to Craig Blank, our con executive, Andrew Dave Sniff, our program genius here at KFMB. All these podcasts are commercial free at IYMoney.com. We'll see you next week with Michelle and all about soil science. Take care. And the Very Good Food Foundation, of course.